The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I really want to thank Miro, one of the most useful tools they sponsor this podcast. They are my go-to resource when it comes to working remotely and collaborating. They're also great for an office, but let me paint a picture for you. Everyone here is working from home in some capacity. Either we have peers that work from home, maybe we're part in the office, part out. Collaboration can be chaotic. Miro is the ultimate digital whiteboard and visual collaboration platform. You could be a remote team, you could be a creative agency, you could be a solopreneur, Miro allows you to brainstorm, plan, and execute seamlessly. Picture this. You're in a virtual meeting mapping out a huge project with Miro. You can drag and drop sticky notes, sketch wireframes, organize ideas all in real time. You collaborate with your team no matter where they are. This is a game changer. If you are ready to transform your workflow, you have to try Miro today. To show you how powerful it is, I created my own Miro board that you can check out at Miro.com slash success pod. It has a ton of resources for entrepreneurs, but it will also show you all the functionality of Miro. So go to Miro.com or go to Miro.com slash success pod for a ton of resources. Try Miro today. It's going to radically change how you collaborate with your team. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. They have great podcasts you should go listen to, but they also have great technology that can help your business. The big reason why more than 300 of last year's unicorn startups use HubSpot is because there is no other software that keeps you better connected with your teams and your customers so you can crush all your business, sales, revenue, marketing goals. The new HubSpot Sales Hub brings you that power of an easy-to-use platform designed for today's top entrepreneurs, today's top sales teams, with 360-degree deal management and real-time reporting, you get accurate windows into every inch of your business. And with AI-powered tools like their new ChatSpot, you'll have a dedicated assistant that knows your business inside and out. ChatSpot enables your team with one-stop access to a ton of time-saving functions like pulling data, tracking calls, managing leads, scheduling emails. So trade cold calls for warm leads because when it comes to scaling sales, your software should be smart. And the solutions should be simple. Get on track for your best Q1 yet. Check out HubSpot Sales Hub at HubSpot.com slash sales. Today, my guest is Samson Mo. He's currently the CEO of Pixelmatic, the development studio behind Infinite Fleet, as well as the CEO of Jan3, a new Bitcoin technology company with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization. Samson is known for his work on El Salvador's Bitcoin strategy and nation-state Bitcoin adoption in general. He was previously CSO at Blockstream, a leading provider of Bitcoin infrastructure. And before joining Blockstream, he was the COO at BTC China, one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges and mining pools in the world. At BTCC, Samson oversaw day-to-day -day operations of the company and directly managed the exchange and mining pool business units. Now, we spoke about the block size war, Bitcoin maximalism, adoption of crypto by nation states, why Ethereum is a security and a shitcoin, scaling Bitcoin, and why Bitcoin will be the best way we save ourselves from tyrannical governments 
and Orwellian 1984 societies. Pick a point in your life, a pivotal point in your life that set you on the path to who you are today. It could be something that got you involved in Bitcoin. It could be something that got you involved in tech. It could have been something your parents did that made you uh, gravitate towards one industry category or the other. So pick that point. We'll go from there. So everything first started when I first read about Bitcoin mining. So this is the inflection point at which I understood that Bitcoin was decentralized and it was unique. Um, many people have heard about Bitcoin and they gloss over it and they read about it in the media and it's often portrayed in a very bad light. But um, most people understand Bitcoin is just um, a digital currency or a virtual currency. But when I first read about Bitcoin mining, that was when I really dug into the details and I understood that it's an open system that is permissionless, that has nobody controlling it. Because when you understand Bitcoin mining, you understand anybody can join in and secure the network, audit the network, and actually run the back-end systems of Bitcoin themselves. And so you're, you already, from day one, you went into the weeds. Like you, you obviously are a very technical individual. You jumped into the weeds, but you decided to build a company in Bitcoin mining. Um, why, why, as opposed to, or, or go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So that was uh, my initial foray. So you told me to pick the moment, right? So after that, uh, it took me a while before I, I guess I officially got into Bitcoin. And I say that is when I joined BTC China. That was a Bitcoin exchange based in China. So this is like the inflection point. But then there's another long journey into it. Okay, so then what was your, so so you know about Bitcoin, you just learned casually about Bitcoin mining. Did you like spin up some S9? I don't even know what year it was. Like what, what did you, did you like figure out how to order an S9 and like try and like hook it up in your house, your condo and realize it was like super loud and super hot or like what's the first foray in the Bitcoin mining? Well, this was a uh, 2013, I believe. So okay. I tried super to set up on my laptop, but um, people oh, were already early. using yeah. GPUs and uh, uh, maybe FPGAs at that time. S9s were not out yet, but I couldn't mine anything on my laptop, unfortunately. But at least that was the point at which I understood Bitcoin. But I didn't really get into it until I joined BTC China in 20, late 2014, early 2015. And I was the COO there. And it was a Bitcoin exchange and mining pool. But um, that's really the start of the journey down the rabbit hole into you know, all the things that I'm doing today with nation state Bitcoin adoption and Gen 3. Do you think that somebody has to understand Bitcoin mining to understand Bitcoin? Is that important or is that more in the weeds? Not at all. I would say because uh, I'm a game developer by trade, so I build virtual worlds with economies and it's all centrally controlled, right? You have a game currency, you have to manage the game currency. And for me, it was understanding Bitcoin in that context that there was nobody controlling the currency that really sparked that light bulb aha moment for myself. But anybody can understand Bitcoin. You can read the white paper. I actually read the white paper after I set up all my Bitcoin mining systems. But uh, like people can go into Bitcoin in, in different ways and they don't need to mine Bitcoin to understand Bitcoin. I was always curious about that because we always still are, even today, I feel like we're, we're solving for the problem of, of understanding and, and, and adoption, right? Like how many, well, I mean, 2013, now we're, now we're almost 10 years later. So I've always wondered if, if people went more into the weeds or if, if there's other adoption problems that you've seen, because you've been in this for such a long time. Um, now, okay, so you, you joined BTCC as COO. Um, so walk me through that career decision. 
why why did, so were you in bitcoin professionally before or was this something that was just more of a hobby and then this is like your first for because coo of a large company is that's significant well you have to remember everything was a bit smaller back then like um btc china had about 18 percent of hash rate which was not a lot of uh computing power back then but uh, these days 18 percent is very substantial right because everything has grown but um I was running my game company, Pixelmatic, and then my friend was running BTC China, and our offices were just a kitty corner from each other. So he asked me to come on as an advisor originally. So I went in and helped them set up a mobile, uh, mobile app development team and started working on some other things. And eventually he just said, why don't you step in as COO? So I had to learn a lot very rapidly about the entire business and about Bitcoin. But prior to that, I was just reading about Bitcoin and observing from the sidelines. But I would say... Once I was in a Bitcoin company, that was when you know you started getting really deep into it. And also at that point, uh, the uh, Bitcoin block size war was kicking off too. The sort of Bitcoin civil war where all the Bitcoin companies were trying to lobby for a block size increase and changing the rules of the protocol. And I kind of got sucked into that that battle. And and even describe to me like there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this show. You you were an entrepreneur building out your own company when you translate some of those lessons to a disruptive tech like bitcoin blockchain as stepping into the coo role of 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 b2c china um how did you find some of those skills translated like how do you build a company in an emerging industry there's no playbook there's no rule book what's the what's the takeaway how you still you know you still have some hair left so you're good but i mean it probably was pretty stressful well, the, the biggest stressful, the most stressful part, I would say, was just understanding how exchanges operate and how um, all the different mechanics work, because there are new products being built all the time on top of Bitcoin and things like margin lending, um, derivatives and things like that. So that was probably new for me, but running a big company was not really anything new. So before I started Pixelmatic, I was actually an executive at Ubisoft. And I helped them build a game studio in Western China from the ground up to about 200 some odd people. So I had the experience running a large team for a public company. And uh, I think that is valuable experience in a disruptive new tech. Because a lot of tech companies, and as you're aware, they may have an idea and they may have some traction but they're typically inexperienced on the company management side so i brought a lot of that you know even-handed management and scaling of the organization itself uh, and running it so at the end uh, um, when i left bd's china i was in charge of the mining pool and the exchange business units and a lot of the core services around operations and the business itself and uh, i'm assuming like now you know several years later like the the whole industry has evolved and i think this is something that um, we start to see in emerging industries, even like cannabis, like day one, um, a lot of uh, passionate product focused operators and entrepreneurs. And then you start to have some experience and you start to have people that have, you know, built, scaled, sold, and then those people are rolled back in. So the whole industry evolves. Um, but so after you left BTC China, um, uh, this is probably where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you spent the majority of your, of your, of your, Bitcoin career at Blockstream, correct? 
that was the okay and walk me through uh that career decision why blockstream um what were you trying to solve for so you were cso there i'm pretty sure that was out of that was out of canada out of toronto if i'm not mistaken um actually out of was victoria it? victoria oh, was it was the... still in victoria too you've been in vancouver for a while okay gotcha it's still canada <laughs> west yeah. coast gotcha well, Blockstream is a Canadian company. Uh, technically, yeah. it's incorporated in Montreal, but we just marked Victoria as the HQ because I was here. But so um, I, got the, I got none of the spots right. <laughs> <It's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> close enough, close enough. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like uh, the Montreal office is really like a back office of finance people and you know a mailing address. But people would contact us all the time and say, "Can we meet you We're in Montreal?" So we would just say, "Okay, HQ is in Victoria. At least I can meet them and you know do the BD and discussions there." But yeah, the entry into Blockstream was really just meeting Dr. Adam Back. He is the CEO of Blockstream, and our paths crossed during the Bitcoin scaling wars because uh, it was the big blockers on one side and then the small blockers, the people trying to preserve the consensus rule set on the other side. So we were kind of fighting side by side against uh, the big onslaught of the every single Bitcoin company and mining company, right? So we, we built up a relationship and uh, working repertoire. And I decided to join Blockstream because I understood from that battle that things had to happen and Bitcoin infrastructure had to be improved so that we can weather the next storm. Can you go deeper on that, that, uh, like that, that issue, that, that, um, that fight that you're trying to fight? Because a lot of people don't, who aren't in the weeds would not understand how the, what's going on here. Like how are, how are people fighting over Bitcoin? Right. So it was an innocuous change. It's just saying we want more scale, uh, higher throughput, so more transactions in blocks. And the method that the big block camp wanted to use to accomplish that was increasing the block size, like uh, 4 megabyte, 10 megabyte, 32 megabyte blocks, and so forth. And a number of them have branched off and made their own chains, and they're basically unused. But the small block camp wanted to scale in layers, much like the internet. So you have you know, physical cables, then you have uh, TCP IP, HTTP, and then you have apps on top, and then CDNs and everything like that. So it's not trying to increase the, the pipes at the bottom, but build in a structured layer to scale the technology. And we do this through things like the Lightning Network and the Liquid Network, but layers that sit on top of the base. But the slippery slope here is if you start changing a fundamental rule of Bitcoin. So the block size is one such fundamental rule, and then you have other rules, which people are more familiar with, like the 21 million cap. But if you can change this rule, that you can change any of the rules, and then Bitcoin just becomes like a fiat currency. Some people will just dictate what happens, monetary policy, et cetera, et cetera, and Bitcoin just becomes meaningless. So if Bitcoin actually increased the block sizes, and scaled in that method, then it would have been impossible for an average user to run a Bitcoin node on, say, their laptop or um, you know, an old computer. But that's really the key to Bitcoin's success, resilience, and longevity. The fact that individuals can run a Bitcoin node and verify the entire network themselves, rather than outsourcing that to, say, Amazon, someone running a big, powerful server on Amazon, or by extension, a bank. Because then you're just right back in the original territory where we, we left, right? You're back into centralized control by a small number of people, which you have no access to. You at best have read access to what they allow you to read. But the whole point of Bitcoin is that you yourself run a node. You are an active enforcer of the rules of the network. So this was, in a nutshell, what we were fighting for, just Bitcoin's soul. And because... Uh... 
I think that if somebody starts to understand how Bitcoin operates and, and somebody could literally amass, maybe walk me through why someone could not amass a, a data center uh, or just a ton of servers and, and be an actor that could manipulate. Yeah, so I think what you're getting into is the 51% attack, the mining attack, right? Um, amassing a large amount of machinery, uh, ASICs, and then going to attack the network to rewrite the chain. Now, that it's been theorized a lot of times, and um, you actually don't need 51% attack. You could probably sustain an attack with 30 or 40% of the hash rate. But the challenge is, how does one accumulate that much hashing power? And accumulating that much hashing power in stealth mode, because if it's like, let's say, a nation state attack, you'd have to basically buy you know, gigawatts of uh, power, build out a large farm, and then buy ASICs from the suppliers or from the market. And you could not do that without the market realizing what's happening. So it's, it's very difficult to pull off this as a stealth move. And if it's known, then other actors in the space can counter that move because they can they themselves can ramp up and um, you know, ac acquire more ASICs themselves, right? But the key here is that Bitcoin runs on a proof of work model, not proof of stake, which is what Ethereum and other very malleable protocols use. So the problem with proof of stake is you have this, this pie, right? You have the stake and their theory of security is that if you wanted to attack it, you'd have to buy a stake and therefore you know, it wouldn't work. But the problem is you can co-opt a stake too, which is what happened to Ethereum. So people delegated responsibility out to the exchanges. So most of the exchanges now are staking on behalf of the user. So you kind of have this self-inflicted centralization where you know, the big entities now have control of it. But the problem is you cannot expand the stake. You have that pie and like, let's say, you know, there's a, it's under attack and you have another actor, you're like you yourself want to expand the pie. You can't do that because it's the stake. Whereas with Bitcoin mining, you have this much hash right now, but let's say the US was going to attack. Um, let's say El Salvador wants to defend. El Salvador can manufacture their own silicon, make their ASICs, make the miners, get energy and add to the pie because there's no upper limit to proof of work. You can keep adding more and more work to the pie. All so it, it needs it defensible. is defensible. It makes yeah, it more it, defensible. You just need work, right? You have to build it, deploy it, but you can secure it because there's no upper bound. I understand. Okay, so this is this is really what you were fighting for. And this is this actually uh Blockstream's like what was Blockstream's mission? I know this is something you were very passionate about, but what was Blockstream's mission as a company? Well, I would say Blockstream's mission is to uh, augment Bitcoin, right? Building technologies to scale Bitcoin like Lightning and like Liquid. So these second layer or even third layers in the future of ways to scale Bitcoin, because one of the attack vectors on during the block size wars was Bitcoin is too slow. Seven transactions a second, it's not enough for the world, but it, it's not meant to be the, the main chain level is not meant to scale to transaction throughputs for billions of people. You have to use higher layer technologies where you're you know, abstracting away some of that um, confirmation time and you're batching transactions, right? Bitcoin at the base is a settlement. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite. Now, as a business owner, I always remember when my company hits a growth spurt. It's great, but then you realize that things start to break. Things are taking three times as long manual processes start to bury your team in paperwork and admin, and you really don't have one reliable source of data or truth 
to understand how healthy your business is. If this sounds familiar, you have to know three numbers. 37,000, that's how many businesses have upgraded to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years streamlining accounting, inventory, HR, and more for growing companies. And one, because your business truly is one of a kind, NetSuite gives you customized solutions so you can manage everything about your business in one place, from inventory to invoicing, one powerfully efficient system. I love having all of my data in one spot. NetSuite allows me to do that. It gives me the big picture so I can make smarter decisions. And they turn complex financials into understandable, actionable insights. Right now, you can get NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free to help improve your business. It's designed to help you boost performance across key areas of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash scottclary to download the checklist and see how one complete system can transform your growth. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Get more control in your business with NetSuite. I want to thank Belay for sponsoring today's episode. They provide solutions that all of us need. They help us get back more of our time because time is the most precious resource. A lot of you listening are business leaders, entrepreneurs. You know that if you spend your time incorrectly, it can make or break your business, your personal, professional relationships. It can completely sidetrack you and stop you from reaching your goals. So I'm gonna ask you, are you protecting your time? How much of your day is eaten up by tasks that could have been done by someone else? Wouldn't you rather spend your time on things that truly matter? The answer should be yes, because you have to to move the needle on whatever it is you're trying to build. That's where Belay comes in. They are the nation's largest pool of exceptional U.S.-based talent. Belay offers flexible staffing solutions to free you up. Need a virtual assistant to conquer those pesky administrative tasks or maybe an accounting professional to really keep your finances in order? Belay can help with all that and way more. Their personalized matching process saves you the headache of hiring by finding the perfect match for your needs in as little as a week. Focus on what matters the most with the help from Belay. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to learn more and get started. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. And that is why the block time is 10 minutes because you need 10 minutes to synchronize the entire world, uh, right? But you have to take into account the slowest possible node and 
have to propagate transactions and blocks to that slowest node. And about 10 minutes is right. Bitcoin is very much built around real world physics, right? So you have to factor in the speed of light. How long does it take for light to circumnavigate the globe? So there is no way that you can have everything settling on chain for a planetary population. You have to use things like lightning where not everything is written to a central repository, but individual nodes have their own map of the network themselves and then they, they sync up on their own way. And you mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting. You mentioned that um, one of the outcomes of this, of this particular battle could render Bitcoin quote unquote meaningless. But I would like to understand because I don't know if there is a, def uh, across the board, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have a very defined meaning for Bitcoin, but across the board, it is, it doesn't seem like there is a universal understanding of what it should or should not be. So what is the, what is Bitcoin's meaning? Is it, is it something that's supposed to be transactional? Is it something supposed to be a store of value, more, more symbolic of gold or something like that? Um, and then I'm also curious about if you are very bullish on Bitcoin, um, and, and I only know enough to be dangerous. So if I'm misspeaking, you tell me, but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as into it as some people are. But if you are very bullish on, on Bitcoin, then I also want to understand the place that Ethereum and uh, blockchains that, in, from my understanding, operate like an OS or an operating system, and you build things on them. So that, that that's just sort of where I'm curious about, because I want to unpack that. But first, let's describe what what bitcoin is how to how how it has meaning versus what is a meaningless version of bitcoin in your in your interpretation so i guess i'll go with the easy answer first and is that the question is am, am i bullish on bitcoin i'm very bullish on bitcoin i see bitcoin as the ultimate end state and that is what you're asking about earlier what is hyper bitcoinization hyper bitcoinization is the point at which we don't convert back to fiat money similar to how you don't convert dollars to seashells anymore. You might buy a seashell for a decorative thing or a necklace, but you're not going to buy seashells and hoard them to store value, right? But the, the other part is, what is Bitcoin? And the answer is very simple. Bitcoin is simply money. So it is all of those things that you mentioned. It is a store of value. It's a medium of exchange, and eventually it will be a unit of account. And on some levels, it's already a unit of account. But what is a, a, a useless version of Bitcoin? I would say that is Ethereum. Ethereum is centralized. It's basically a, a central bank digital currency at this point because there, it's just big institutions running the chain. So it's kind of defeated the purpose already. You don't have um, Is this similar money. to Ripple? Excuse me, just to understand. Is that like similar to Ripple in terms of like it's, centralization? It's, it's similar to Ripple, it's similar to FTT, it's similar to everything. So you have Bitcoin on one side of the spectrum, which is decentralized, permissionless, immutable, and then you have everything else on the varying levels of uh, uselessness, right? So, you know, I, I think there are some cryptocurrencies that you could say are relatively decentralized, but for the most part, 99% of them, they're all masquerading as decentralized. They set up a Swiss foundation somewhere and they say, we're decentralized, but it's really Vitalik and his buddies deciding monetary policy. So you effectively have reduced, re um, replaced the Federal Reserve with a, a bunch of guys you know, on a Zoom call that know nothing about money, deciding what money is. And right now, I mean, they're on a kick to make Ethereum sound money. So they're trying to implement monetary policy 
and make it uh, more valuable, right? Like reducing the supply, uh, burning fees, locking things up so that people can't withdraw from staking pools or whatever. But that can change. Like if you can change in one direction, you can change in the other direction, right? So when, when Ethereum price is high, they can say, well, we need some inflation. We're going to print some more. And this is totally within their power to do. And this is why a lot of Bitcoiners call Ethereum a shitcoin because it's so malleable. They can change anything they want. It was hacked. There was a DAO hack. They rolled it back on the chain. And I believe that was the inflection point for them to just fail. They could have that been. Was also, I think that was the first like SEC investigation into anything crypto, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it? Um, perhaps. It? But I mean... Ethereum is really an unregistered security, and a lot of these things are unregistered securities, FTT included, but pretty much every crypto is an unregistered security. And this is why Bitcoiners try to distance ourselves from all those things, because they are trying to uh, affinity scam and say, we're like Bitcoin, we're the same thing, and they want Bitcoin to be a subset of uh, crypto, but it's actually very different. Very interesting. And I'm super curious because actually prepping for this interview, I saw you actually did a, um, a podcast with Vitalik and I didn't realize now I understand uh, whoever the host was. I can't remember his name, but now I understand why he got you both on that call. Yeah. So if if I, I didn't listen to the whole thing and now I probably will after this, I, sh I should have. I didn't realize it was such like a, a contentious uh, podcast. But um, if if you were going to say this to Vitalik, what would what's Vitalik's argument? Because that's a pretty that's a pretty bold claim. I've never heard this claim before that Ethereum's a shitcoin. I've heard that a lot of shitcoins are shitcoins, but not Ethereum. Well, the thing is, every shitcoin likes to call other things shitcoins, and they think they're not, <laughs> but they are. So I remember Do, Do, Do Kwan was like laughing at other things and saying, oh, they're all shitcoins, and uh, you know, they're yeah. going to fail. We know, we know how that yeah. ended up. Yeah, <laughs> you know how that ended up, right? But Ethereum is just malleable. If you look at some of their early recordings of their meetups and things, they're talking about their ICO. I mean, that in itself is an indicator that it's a security, right? It's a effort by a group of people to make money and in attract investment into their project. It's just that they don't have a company, right? But if you look at everything that Ethereum does, it's basically a company. Um, a DAO is basically a board of directors, right? You're just saying it's a tokenized thing and therefore it's not under the existing framework. But I think regulators and um, you know the CFTC and SEC, they're starting to understand that a lot of that's just bullshit. Like it's really a securities offering that you're trying to pretend is decentralized. And I think the time is running out for these guys. Um, now, then that sort of, uh, this is a great way to sort of dovetail into the, the thing that I alluded to earlier, which is smart, like smart contracts built on Ethereum. I've never in my life heard of a smart contract, which is, again, if Ethereum's EOS, and you're saying it's a centralized OS, and the points you're making are very valid, um, then you have all these programs built on all these smart contracts and all these other things that we've now, you know, it's, it's blown up into everything from DeFi to NFTs to whatever. I'm not sure if they're all built on Ethereum. I don't think they are, but a lot of shit has been built on Ethereum. So I haven't seen much built on Bitcoin. So what's, why has there not been more of an explosion in smart contracts and the understanding that Bitcoin can be an underlying OS for all these applications? Well, you don't really need an underlying OS. The world doesn't need some sort of OS. And if it did have an OS, it should be decentralized. But you, you, there are things built on Bitcoin, but they're not the same scale as Ethereum, simply because the Silicon Valley money machine is not investing in companies building on top of sound money. 
Silicon Valley itself does not understand sound money. They don't even understand gold, barely. What they're interested in is a quick turnaround and a quick gain on their investment. Like if you watch the All In podcast where you have Chamath and David Sachs and those guys, they're all talking about Solana and pumping their bags, right? But what the VCs want is super fast liquidity and turnaround on their investment. And they can achieve that through investing in these token projects that have no real purpose or utility. It's just an easy way to dump on retail investors. So they don't need to wait seven to 10 years for a company to go public. They buy Solana in the pre-sale at a discount and sell it to retail investors and then they're good, right? So this is why there's such a big, big push for all of these projects and smart contracts, right? At the end of the day, the, you're building smart contracts which are not necessarily immutable or uh, or or unchangeable because they build backdoors into them. If you Google smart contract backdoor, you'll see a lot of these smart contracts, they say, you know, code is law and they've written their rule set in here, but then there's like a access point where they can shut it off. And just like a five minute Google will show you, there's so many of these cases and all of them are very insecure. If you Google DeFi hacks, you'll find pages and pages of hacks. Every week there's a DeFi hack because they're just building JavaScript constructs that are unsecure and have backdoors and centralized. So this is why none of this is really meaningful. Even a smart contract itself needs some sort of input. It's not like a smart contract will just run on it, run on its own. If you go back to the simple example of buying real estate, there has to be some proof that the transaction happens and then the, you know, the, the, the funds are transferred, right? So there's always some input into these things. But the bigger problem is you're building smart contracts and, um, uh, and DeFi stuff that is just relying on trading governance tokens or worthless tokens like fruit, dog tokens, for other dog tokens and other governance tokens. So it's really a house of cards where you're staking some governance token to get another governance token to trade some other governance token. At the end of the day, none of the govern governance tokens even are meaningful because they're centralized and it's a small group of people that's going to decide regardless of the governance tokens direction or what they think should happen. I just want to take a quick second and tell you about one more podcast you have to check out if you're a fan of success story. It's Sales Evangelist hosted by Donald Kelly brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Each week, Donald interviews the world's best sales experts, successful sellers, sales leaders, and entrepreneurs who share their strategies to succeed in sales right now. He brings on Jeffrey Gittimer, Jill Conrath, Bob Berg, Guy Kawasaki. They share actionable insights and stories that will encourage, challenge, and motivate you to hustle your way to more revenue for your business. If you're somebody who's looking to take off in your sales career, if you are an entrepreneur who's looking to sell more, I think all of us are, go listen to Sales Evangelist wherever you get your podcasts. So do you think that there's any application? Because I, I, I complain about this a lot. I feel like a lot of projects, um, and now, you know, this is tying into what you just said. A lot of projects seem to be creating, trying to solve problems that the founders are creating that aren't real problems. I mean, if you look at the average person, they don't give a shit if they're transacting, uh, it, whether or not the transaction they did is stored on the blockchain or not. Like they could have, man, like the, the most popular CRM in the world is still Excel. Like there's so many problems that are being created to be solved for that really have no 
reason being created. And that's, you know, if we talk about like fundamentals of entrepreneurship, I mean, you have to actually solve true pain points in the world, not just, just not make shit up. I feel like a lot of this stuff is making shit up. Um, yeah. And they justify that by saying we have to innovate. Right. And I, I, going back to your earlier point, like how would Vitalik defend Ethereum? He would say, you know, it's uh, pushing the boundaries and innovating on things, but it's really not. Nothing they've done is really innovative at all. And nothing they do, like you're saying, is really useful in any real world situation, right? Ethereum, there's a video of um, a few Ethereum founders saying, we knew that Ethereum 1.0 would never scale. But when they were sourcing investment for their ICO, that was not the messaging. They were saying this is done and it's a finished product and it's the world computer. But then they keep changing their narrative and they just haven't been nailed down to the cross yet about what they're actually doing, which is raising capital. If you want to innovate, simply innovate, write code. There's a saying, cypherpunks write code, but they're not writing code, they're soliciting investment for you know their little science experiment and not disclosing the risks and they have no liabilities because it's not a legal structure. So it's kind of the worst of every single possible world combined. Um, with blockchain, is there innovation that you've seen? It doesn't, and it can be on, it can be with Bitcoin. It could be like, I'm thinking uh, stable coins. Is there any need for any of this? What's something that you're actually excited about? Um, I'm really excited about a lot of peer-to-peer -peer tech that um, the Bitfinex and Tether guys are working on. It's called Keat and Hole Punch, but they've built this product. You can check it out at keat.io, but it's a peer-to-peer -peer messaging app, and they're getting ready to release the mobile version soon. But this is going to actually change a lot of things. So if Bitcoin is sound money, you still need a medium to engage with people that is not centralized, right? If you're still messaging people through, uh, I don't know, WhatsApp or something, there's still a centralized server. And this can be shut off and it can be monitored. There's tons of metadata leaking everywhere. But if we can get to more of a peer-to-peer -peer world, that, in my view, supports the peer-to-peer -peer money, which is Bitcoin. So it's starting to fix the underlying problem with the world. Now, a lot of people throw out the term blockchain, but I think the innovation is really Bitcoin. The blockchain is really just the toxic waste that is generated to allow us to have Bitcoin, which is peer-to-peer -peer cash that we can transact directly with one another. If, there, if it was possible to do that without a blockchain, that would be great because the blockchain is just something that takes up space on your Bitcoin node and it's growing every year. But that's the best solution we have right now. I think a lot of these second layer technologies, things like what Blockstream is working on and other companies, this will help alleviate that and allow Bitcoin to continue to grow and scale. And then, so so let's talk about that. So ameliorating Bitcoin, um, that's what Blockstream's mission is. And I think that's what you've worked on for, you know, now you're still working on that. I'm curious what Jan3 is doing because I actually have no idea. And I went to the website, I couldn't find anything. So you're going to tell me what they're doing. But, <laughs> and I think it's like probably still because you're building it out. It's like still sort of a little bit new. But um, so the the things that Blockstream is working on, so we're talking about Lightning Network, we're talking about um, making Bitcoin better and making Bitcoin more efficient. So what what is the current state of Bitcoin? So what are the upper limits of what it can do um, that Blockstream's contributed and, and other people have contributed? Well, there's no real upper limit because you're scaling Bitcoin with layers. So the Lightning Network, um, you can have a theoretical throughput of about 40 million transactions a second, right? There's no upper bound because you just keep adding more nodes and all of the traffic and interactions are between the different nodes. So if, you, if I'm not transacting with you, you don't need to know the transactions I've made. And this is how it becomes scalable. 
you can have multiple uh, side chains. So a side chain is a Bitcoin, uh, a, a blockchain that's anchored to Bitcoin. So right now there's Liquid, and um, you could potentially have other different side chains. But the key is that they all settle back to Bitcoin, and that they're using Bitcoin, and they didn't print a token to uh, make themselves rich. So it's just all Bitcoin through and through, from Bitcoin base layer to layer two and beyond. And so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I lost my train of thought. It's okay. Oh no, no. <laughs> well, I was also going to say. So I'm trying to address all like the, the the critiques, right? So the other one would be volatility. So your goal is to make it so that we don't keep bringing Bitcoin back to to, to U.S. dollars. And and you're 100 percent right because everyone, even if you say right now, like you know how much how much Bitcoin do you have or what's your value, like psychologically you're you're pinning it back to a U.S. dollar amount or maybe your local currency right um so the goal is to eventually not do that but i mean the critique is volatility i can't what is it i think it's by a cup of coffee or some <laughs> some there's some uh there's some uh there's some uh de facto like transaction um that we should be able to do that's hard to do if prices increase decrease go all over the map yeah so bitcoin is volatile because it's still growing but it's important to put everything into perspective. So Bitcoin is like 13 years old. Um, it's still a, a baby, really. And it's actually quite impressive that it's grown this much in you know a decade plus. Um, it's the same with the iPhone. Like the iPhone has only been around for a very short amount of time. I think it was uh, first out in 20, 2009 or something like that. I remember switching my BlackBerry for an iPhone. But it hasn't been around that long. But now it's very ubiquitous. And that whole smartphone form factor kind of emerged from that, right? So things can change very quickly, especially with fiat currencies, because they are inherently defective, because uh, the central banks can print it as much as they want. There is no check and balance here. And Bitcoin is just a superior money because you know that there is a set amount of Bitcoin. It's 21 million, and that can be subdivided into 100 million per coin. So you know the rule set, you know what you're getting into. And one example I like to give is that Bitcoin is a, a ruler with a finite amount of you know, units on that ruler. Um, there is no such ruler for financial, in financial circles. Like, but people, I guess, measure in dollars, but you can't measure in dollars because the supply is constantly fluctuating up and down, right? You have uh, you know, kilometers or miles for distance. You have uh, ounces and milliliters and liters for volume. But what do you use to measure monetary value? It's going to be Bitcoin because that's the only thing that is really set in stone. Everything else is just someone's printing paper, and or not even paper now, just a database entry, and it's changing every single day. And you know, the interest rates and everything change too on a weekly or monthly basis. So then, okay, so we understand that maybe today's show is brought to you by one password now listen we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts i have a solution it's called one password one password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like ibm and slack to keep logins credit cards and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access no more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere I've been using 1Password for a year now, and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, 
everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom Clary for two weeks free. I want to take a second and thank Indeed. They're a huge sponsor of the Success Story podcast. And as business leaders, we're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. It's to match with Indeed. Now, if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. You need to ditch the busy work. You need to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster, all the tools you need are in one spot. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Just a quick question. Have you ever had one of those oh no moments when you realize that you accidentally deleted a huge file or worse, your whole computer dies? I know I have. It's happened to me a lot, but don't sweat it. The sponsor of today's episode, Backblaze, they have your back. It is unlimited backups for all your Macs, your PCs, or even your whole company. And it's really affordable, under a hundred bucks a year. If you're running a business, they take the stress out of protecting everyone's data. If you need more bells and whistles for compliance, so on and so forth, they have enterprise options too. Honestly, losing data sucks, but Backblaze makes getting it back easy. They have restored billions of files. They offer tons of restore options, including rapid recovery in an event of data loss or ransomware. And you can access your backed up data from everywhere and anywhere in the world using their web app, iOS, or Android apps. It's been recommended by the New York Times, Inc., Macworld, PC World, LifeWire, Wired, Tom's Guide, 9to5Mac, and tons more. And best, you can try it fully featured with no risk at backblaze.com slash story. They set up that link for all Success Story podcast listeners. That is a no-risk free trial at backblaze.com slash story. Seriously, back up your stuff. The printing money is not is not a great thing, and I think we've seen a lot of issues with countries printing money over COVID um, more than more than ever before. So your goal is your goal, I guess, is this with Jan three now? You're trying to get countries to adopt or help help me understand because I know there's like there's uh, there's El Salvador um, and there's help me understand like countries adopting Bitcoin versus stable coins versus uh, CBDC, which seems to be the route that everyone's worried a country will take if they like the idea of digital currency. Walk me through that and sort of what you're doing. Right. So what we're doing is um, we have a wallet that we're developing called the Aqua Wallet. It, it would be for Bitcoin and stablecoin. So the, the U.S. dollar denominated value instrument is not going away anytime soon. And stablecoins are a useful thing that can help give access to the financial system to people in the global south. If you can't open a bank account, you can still get Tether. And that is a useful tool. So back to your earlier point, is there anything useful with the blockchain? Well, having a stablecoin on a chain or without a chain, like, for example, other protocols that 
are more like the Lightning Network, do add value. But it's not necessarily about the chain. Now, I think um, when I joined Blockstream, it was about augmenting Bitcoin and doing some things to help scale Bitcoin and basically cut off that sort of uh, attack vector where people say Bitcoin cannot scale because now it is clear that Bitcoin can scale. So that is done. But we have new attacks that are going to come in the next few years or decades on Bitcoin too, um, such as CBDCs. I would say that's a, a form of attack. I don't believe it will be a, a successful attack, but it's a type of attack. And then you have misinformation um, a lot at the government levels. We saw some examples in the US where um, you had some people saying, you know, Bitcoin is controlled by a few developers and a few mining pools, and therefore it can be regulated. And we want, um, we want software developers to register themselves and whatnot, right? But these are, these are bad things, and it's a bad direction for human civilization in general because that's just leading to uh, authoritarian, authoritarian 1984 type of uh, life for everybody in the world where you're constantly under surveillance and there's zero freedom. So I think Bitcoin is the bulwark against that. And what we hope to do is to get more countries like El Salvador adopting a Bitcoin standard and a part of that is really just reteaching people what money is. Money is meant to be a mechanism by which we exchange our, value, our, our time and value. It's not supposed to be uh, something that a central bank is managing. And it's not supposed to be a tool by which you can surveil people. And it's definitely not something you should be using to try to uh, you know, manipulate uh, the prosperity of a nation, right? But all of these things are happening, and I think the work we're doing to engage at a nation-state level can help to defend against that because we can educate um, legislators and members of parliament or Congress, like, what is Bitcoin and what is money? And why is money critical to the success of a nation-state? And why having sound monetary policy will prevent things like inflation and hyperinflation down the road? And, and how do you plan on convincing a, a nation state that they should adopt Bitcoin like, like El Salvador is, is trying to do versus a CBDC? Because it seems like a CBDC um, is, is totally in line with what a, a, like a, a country would want to accomplish as much as, you know, I hate it, but people like it makes sense that if I was trying to if I was trying to, you know, uh, have better control over or track my citizens and outside of them pushing back, um, it serves the interest of the government. Well, the key here is to change the interest of the government so that they're more pro-freedom. So going back home to Canada, um, it's like it's supporting people like Pierre Polyev that are talking about freedom, uh, sound fiscal policy and just common sense things like we shouldn't be buying oil from overseas when we have oil domestically. Right. They, these things are are just uh, nonsensical if you think about it and, and you step back. There are countries that are energy independent that just put themselves in a place to be dependent and, and cede sovereignty. And I think Bitcoin is a step to restore a lot of that, but not just Bitcoin itself, but the the first principles thinking around Bitcoin, like why why what is money? How do we become independent? How do we not be reliant on others? And how do we do things that make basic sense, right? A lot of the world has forgotten about what money is. People think it's just a number in my bank a, a account. A thousand percent. A thousand percent, yeah. yeah. I mean, but 
it's the same for energy. People forget you need energy. Human civilization is dependent on energy. But because you're comfortable, you have lights on and heat in your house, you forget what that comes from. And people also don't understand how energy is produced. And they think, you know, we have to go green. It's got to be all solar and wind. But you don't start tracking environmental impact from the point at which you buy that solar panel. That has a life before it is available for purchase. It has to be mined. The solar panels themselves, the, the, the photovoltaic leaves, have to be made, and they're made with coal. And then at the end of life, it has to be disposed. But it's almost like they look at this narrow slice of the thing and say, from the point I buy it to here, it's green. Therefore, it's good. But you ignore the beginning and the end of the thing. It's like going to the grocery store and saying, yeah, meat is good. Like uh, It just appears in the grocery store magically, right? But this is what we're living with. I know we're living with it, but I mean, you're, you're taking on... Um... I, you're taking on a mo it's a very good thing you're taking on but it's a monumental task because people are so stressed about their immediate vicinity and the things they can touch and feel and smell and taste that it, it's hard to get people out of their own bubble right and that's what you're saying you're doing you're taking you're getting governments out of their own bubble you're getting people out of their own bubble and their immediate surroundings saying listen we're trying to do this for the betterment of humanity and this is why that's a monumental task <laughs> well but it's all that we can do, right? And a lot of what we're doing is just simply being a resource and engaging and trying to educate and point people in the right direction. But ultimately, you know, people have to change, governments have to change. If, uh, if it's Canada, then Trudeau has to go. And we need new leadership that understands basic fundamental economics and monetary policy and why you need fiscal responsibility to step in. But maybe we can be a resource and affect change that way. But that's what we're trying, at least. All we can do is try. And walk me through, okay, so like, let's use El Salvador as a, as a case study. Maybe there's other countries um, uh, that are probably further along than Canada and the US. So um, what what is a good adoption of Bitcoin and what's the proper terminology to bring Bitcoin into a country? What's the what's the word verbiage for that? Uh, I just say Bitcoin adoption. <laughs> it's just keeping okay, it simple. Fine. That's fine. Let's yeah. do that. So what's a country that's doing it properly? How are they doing it? Walk me through like a case study. Well, I would say El Salvador is the best example we have right now. They've made Bitcoin legal tender, which means basically Bitcoin is money. And you don't have to deal with capital gains tax on, on Bitcoin, on money. Because you, know, you, you can't have uh, Bitcoin acting as money if you have to track every transaction and report cap gains on it, right? And this is part of that, part of that greater initiative that we have at Jan3, which is educating people about what money is. Why do you have inflation? Why do you have problems? Why is the economy contracting? It's because you're not treating money as money. You're treating it as an, a tool for various purposes, but definitely not money. Um, I mean, Canada itself has a, a new law coming into effect early January, which is denying foreign buyers uh, the ability to buy property in Canada. But how do you expect to grow the economy? How do you expect to have more immigration if you're restricting capital inflow into the country, right? They can't really squeeze blood from a stone. <laughs> and this is why people want tourism, why people want investments. And I think El Salvador is on the right track because they're saying Bitcoin is money. Um, all the diaspora uh, of El Salvador around the world remit money back home. Money is money. Um, people should invest in El Salvador, come to visit El Salvador for tourist, tourism purposes, right? I mean, if you 
uh, go back to Canada, you get the third degree. Like, why are you coming back? And that's if you're a Canadian. But it, it, they do that to tourists too. Like, why are you coming to Canada? And this is just a, a symptom of uh, a misunderstanding of how the world works and how money works, right? And I think but this is, a, this is relatively recent. That. That, like, I mean, like even in Canada, it's relatively recent. Like, from my understanding, previous to COVID, like Canada had one of the best uh, immigration and, and refugee programs in the world. Um, so I, I don't think that it was always uh, like closing its borders. I know that for they probably closed borders for a significant period of time, more longer than most countries. But do you think this is like a you're saying this is like a, a symptom of like government, like Trudeau? And this is not going away. I, I haven't been there in a year and a half. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say it's a symptom of uh, just governments in general. Like you, you're either using money as money, or you're entering into some protectionism mode where you're thinking that you're protecting what you've got, but you're basically committing yourself to a slow decline. Right? If you look at history and the growth of the four Asian tigers, they grew very rapidly. Um, in the, the past few decades, and that was because they're welcoming investment capital in, right? You want to invest because you can you know, move your money in easily. But with things like capital controls and restriction of funds and um, even you know, cutting people's bank accounts off and, and making it very difficult to move and transact money, that just results in economic stale, uh, a stalemate and death eventually. So the hope is that El Salvador can reinvigorate this and make people understand. But even in Switzerland, you have a good example, right? The Swiss love money. They want you to bring money to Switzerland, buy Swiss property, put your money into Swiss banks, and then they can grow and invest. But you know, most countries don't see that. But I, I think that we're reaching an inflection point where they are starting to understand this because they're seeing Swiss inflation is pretty flat. And then every other country around that's trying to use money as a tool for surveillance and control is suffering. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about one of the aspects that you mentioned, um, the negative aspects of, of CBDC, which is surveillance. But it's funny, you know, you know this as well as I do, like Bitcoin, uh, everyone kept saying originally, like way, way, way back, it was used for illicit means and it was only used to buy drugs on Silk Road, and now everybody knows that it's probably easier to trace a drug transaction through Bitcoin than it is through actual cash. Um, but to that point, then, right now, you—I'm curious about privacy. So, if you do have a country that adopts Bitcoin as legal tender, do you not run into some of the same problems as a CBDC because you can trace everything that anyone's ever bought anywhere? Um, yes and no. I mean, if you're using Bitcoin through Lightning, it is private, right? It's a restoration of the cash property to money. And I think the, the other good thing about some of the, our initiatives is that we can educate people that cash is a good thing, right? Um, it's a way to ensure democracies can be open and free because you can have the right to protest and assemble and have free speech. But if you can cut off the monetary spigot, you can stop all of that stuff, right? If you look at protests around the world, uh, there's a few things they try to do in authoritarian regimes, which is cut off the internet and trace money, like see if people spent money on the subway to get to the protests and then go and find them and make sure that they suffer after the fact. And we had that in Canada too. If you donated to the truckers, yeah, we're shutting your account down, right? So this yeah, is so the that problem. That is an like, issue. Yeah, cash is very important. And it's the key to any semi-functioning democracy that, that people can have their own money. So the separation of money and state is of critical importance if you want freedom. 
because the ten tendency is towards less freedom because if as the government becomes more fearful of the populace, they want to enforce more and more measures to prevent any threat to them. But that's not in the best interest of a country, right? Like if you look at China, they had zero COVID policies. And then when people actually started protesting, they, they gave up those policies, right? And you could say the same in Canada. If, if there was no trucker con, no freedom convoy or trucker protest, would we be opening up right now? And it's questionable. No, I, I appreciate that. Okay. Um, I, I want to I wanna give you, like, we went through a ton of great stuff, and I appreciate that because, like I, I mentioned before, I get a lot of different perspectives on on various, but I've never had somebody who is, is, uh, is so well-versed in, in Bitcoin, to be quite honest. So I really appreciate it. Um, no, it's it's actually been like really educational for me, which I mean, it means it's always a good show. Um, any any final thoughts on uh, last things that are are hyper important that I didn't ask that you should teach over to the audience? Sort of like the floor is yours, um, and then I'll make sure that people like know where to reach out to you and connect with you and, and whatnot. Yeah, I think we've covered a wide range of topics. I would just leave it to your audience to maybe think about what money is and how you can protect yourself. There are a lot of Bitcoiners that reach these conclusions on their own. Uh, Michael Saylor is one such person. He's thinking of um, the macroeconomic scale at a, at a company level, right? How do I, as a company, protect the money I have, the cash I have? And that's rapidly devaluing. He's likening it to an ice cube that's melting. So that, that was why he implemented the corporate policy at MicroStrategy to buy Bitcoin. And that's been a good mood for them. Now, people might say you're down because Bitcoin is down, but that's if you're thinking of things on a very short time horizon. And one of the things that Bitcoin does is it puts your thinking on longer time scales, right? Most people are not buying Bitcoin for themselves, but for their children or future generations. Like if you can earn, if you can mine fiat currency, mine Canadian dollars and mine US dollars, you're okay. But what you want is to have uh, generational wealth that can be passed on, right? And you want a better future for your children and their children because nobody wants their children to live in a 1984 type hellscape where they're monitored constantly, right? That's not, not a world you want to bring new life into. So Bitcoin makes you think on the longer time horizon and it makes you understand a lot more of the world in the context of how money works because we've lastly, largely forgotten what money is and we've taken it for granted. Amazing. Um, if people want to, you should, you have a book. Have you written a book or no? <laughs> no, it's on my to-do list. <laughs> okay. Uh, it sounds like you've written a book, but okay. So uh, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about what you're working on, um, what's the best place for them to connect with you? Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my handle is Excelion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And that's basically it. And one day I will write a book. Cool. Very good. Um, I asked this question to everyone to close it out. So after your entire career, um, multiple successes, uh, built various companies and you're an entrepreneur yourself, um, what does success look like for you at the end of the day? Well, I think success should just be happiness. You should be happy with where you are in life and what you have. Um, I think understanding Bitcoin simplifies a lot of that because you understand you know, very material things, um, status symbols, they're not really meaningful in the end. And, you know, you should just be happy with the people around you and what you're doing in life. That to me is a, is a success. Yeah. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.